just to review, most people don't know where we worship. Most people in town don't know exactly where we worship. We don't have a sign out front. People aren't going to show up here because of our 24-7 sign that sits out front because we don't have one. This isn't our facility. Um, second challenge is that uh, people today are looking for more than a friendly church. And we talked about that last week, how, uh, you know, friendliness they can get at school, friendliness they can get at the grocery market, friendliness they can get at the post office. They're looking for more than that. People are looking for actual friends. So we need to be ready to take the next step. And what we do is we practice biblical hospitality, and that allows people that we do not yet know into our lives. And that's a scary thing. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. You know, you have to be vulnerable to let someone in your home, let someone in your life. But that's what God calls us to do. That's what hospitality is really all about. Well, third challenge, and we're going to address this challenge today, is that we worship God in a school building. And uh, this is very evident today, uh, the, where we worship God. Brings up the question, is that okay? I mean, is it okay to worship God in a school building? Now, conventionally, the answer to that, uh, conventional thinking says no. That you're not allowed to do that, you're not supposed to do that, you're supposed to worship God in a church building, and school buildings should be secular. That's conventional thinking, but that's wrong. It's wrong legally. People misunderstand the precedent that's been set by the Supreme Court. Um, our churches, essentially, and Christians have equal access under the law to public buildings and to public spaces. And so if the uh, school district or the county or the city or whoever we're talking about allows groups to meet, uh, then it has to also allow religious groups to meet. In other words, just because you are a Christian, that does not mean that the Constitution no longer applies to you. It doesn't mean that you have therefore given up all of your uh, God-given rights that our nation historically has upheld. Um, and so people misunderstand what the law really says. It's perfectly fine for us to rent this facility and to use it for the purposes that we want to use it for. Um, but more importantly, people misunderstand what worship really is. When you come across someone who says, well, you know, church stuff, that should be held in church. It should be in a certain time, in a certain place. It should be limited there. It shows a basic misunderstanding of what worship really is. You see, the worship of God is not limited by a certain place. And so if secularists or whoever comes along and says, you can't worship God out here, you can't worship God in the public square, you can't worship God in a school building, you need to, you need to understand that they're come from, coming from a basic misunderstanding of what worship is and what, who God really is. You see, God created all places. And so therefore, all places are places where God himself can be and should be worshipped. Worship is not to be limited by a certain time. It doesn't have to be 10 a.m. on Sundays or 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can worship God, and we should worship God at any time, any place. And so worship should not be limited by the state. Worship, we, we should never allow the state to tell us when and where we can worship God. It is a heart issue. And you, you can worship God wherever you are. Worship is not to be limited by the state or by popular opinion, and especially by those who have no knowledge of God. Don't allow them to set the rules for your life in telling you when and where you can worship the Lord. Today, we're going to explore the reason that we gather here every Sunday to worship. And if we are to become the church that God desires us to become, then 
The people whom God loves in our community, and we always need to remember John 3.16, that God so loved the people in Leveland, Texas, that he sent his son to this earth. God so loved every single student at Leveland High School, at the middle school, at the other schools. God so loved every single family that is in our community and beyond. God so loved the people who do not yet know him that he did something incredible and amazing. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. God became flesh, and he entered into our world so that we could have knowledge, a personal experience with him. And if we're going to become the church that God desires, we need to realize that the people whom God loves in our community need to be invited to experience the love that's in this room and the fellowship that is in this room. They need to be invited to our church. They need to be, secondly, befriended through biblical hospitality. And third, they need to experience us truly worshiping God. Now, there's a, there's a debate that goes back for a number of years whether non-believers, whether people who are not yet Christians, can worship God himself. And there's, there's all kinds of debate about that, but what should be undebatable is that when they come into our presence, when we worship God, they experience something. Whether we want to call it worship or not, they experience something that they should desire because it is God who created them and they have a God-shaped void in their heart that they might try to fill up with all other kinds of things and riches and wealth and all kinds of experiences, but only God can fill that void in their heart. And when we show them through our worship that we have experienced that God, it should create a desire in their heart to have the same. And so what is worship? What does it mean to worship God? Well, the very essence of worship is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. Now, many of you know what sacrifice is. If you play baseball or if you ever watch baseball, you know what a sacrifice bunt or a sacrifice fly is. A sacrifice bunt is when a, a batter will come up and he'll, he'll bunt the ball and likely get himself out at first base. He's not going to make it to first, but he's doing it for a reason, to advance the runners on base to the next base. And especially if that guy's on third, he can advance that guy home. He sacrifices himself he takes a penalty upon himself in order for the good of the team, in order to win the game. And so that's what sacrifice really is as we see it in, in baseball. Now, in, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came along, uh, there were essentially two types of sacrifices. The first type of sacrifice that I want to describe to you today is what we call a grain offering. Sometimes it's called a vegetable offering. How was that done? Well, imagine you lived back in that day in ancient Israel, and you wanted to worship God. And you knew you had to give a grain offering. Here's what you would do. You would prepare a meal of wheat or barley, typically. It could be something else, but usually it was wheat or barley. You'd prepare a meal, and you would you'd grind that meal very finely. And you would add oil to it if you wanted. You'd add salt to it if you wanted. Now, you could not add leaven to it or yeast. You could not add honey to it, but you could add oil and salt, and you would take that meal, and it could be cooked or uncooked, either way, and you would take it to the priest. And the priest, he would take a portion of that meal, he'd take a small portion, and he would add to it frankincense. 
And then he would put that on the fire on the altar uh, and offer it to God on the altar. The rest of that grain offering that he did not offer to God on the altar, the priests would keep for themselves because they needed to be supported. All the other tribes had land, but the priests did not have land. They were supported by the goodness of God's people. And so the priest would keep some for himself. Now, how much was required? And that's a very good question. When you were giving, giving a grain offering back in that time, did the loaf have to be a certain size? No. It was completely up to you. It was a free will offering. You could get, you could make it as big as you wanted or as small as you wanted. If you were of modest means, you didn't have a lot, you could only give a little bit, then you, you would probably have a smaller loaf that you would, you would donate than a larger one. And you could completely personalize it. There was no specific amount that was required. And so when you did this, what did all this mean? It symbolized two things. Number one, a grain offering symbolized your acknowledgement of God's provision in your life. That you were saying to God, thank you. You have provided this to me. You provided me this wheat and this barley for my family. You provided me for all the sustenance that I need in this life. And I give some back to you. And so that's what a grain offering uh, symbolized. But it symbolized something else as well. It symbolized that you were presenting not just that little barley, that little loaf to God, but in actuality in your heart, you were presenting your whole life to God. It was a, a, a means by which you were saying to God, here I am, here's my life, consume me, use me any way you see fit. My life, my body, it's yours. That's what a grain offering symbolized. Now, like I mentioned, a grain offering could be personalized. You can make it big, small, you could add oil to it. You could add salt to it, however much or little you wanted to do. It's completely up to you in that day. You could grind it however fine you wanted to grind it. If you wanted to spend five minutes grinding it, that's, that's up to you. If you wanted to spend two hours as an act of devotion to God, I want this to be the very best that I can give to God, then you could spend two hours grinding that, adding, making it as beautiful, as perfect as you wanted but it was completely your choice. Our worship today as believers is like a grain offering. When we come together as a church, when we offer to God our praises, when we pass the plate and we offer to God a portion of what He has granted to us, it is like a grain offering. It, it, we are acknowledging God's provision for our lives. We're saying, thank you, God. You provided me with all the cash in the account, my checking account. You've provided me with my house, my car, however good or bad it might be. You've provided me with life. You've provided me with meals. You've provided me with everything in life. I acknowledge that to you, and I say thank you. But you're also saying to God, when we come here and we worship together, you're saying, God, here I am. Here I am. Consume me. Use me however you want. Here's my life. I give myself to your purposes. Help me to be the best plumber I can be. Help me to be the best mechanic I can be. Help me to be the best whatever I can be. Because I want to do it for your 
glory. This is how you've made me. And so our worship today is very much a free will offering today. And just as God has made you incredibly unique, I mean, there is nobody in this room like you. There's nobody in this world like you. There's nobody in the history of humanity that is like you. God has made you completely unique. And so your offering of yourself to God is going to be, by definition, completely personalized, completely unique. There's no, but think about it. There's nobody in the history of mankind, past, present, or future, who can give to God what you can give to God because he's made you special. And so that is what a grain offering in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, symbolized. Now there was one major rule, one caveat, and it's absolutely critical. In almost every case, a grain offering could not be offered to God unless it was preceded by a blood offering. A blood sacrifice had to come first. And so that was the other kind of sacrifice in the Hebrew Scriptures. A blood offering, or sometimes you'll read it's called an animal offering, or sometimes it's called a burnt offering. But what we're talking about is an animal. It was a sacrifice given to God for a different purpose. It, in the Old Covenant, was given to cover sins. Now, how was a blood offering done? Usually, again, back in that day, imagine if you were back then, you would take a bull or a sheep or a goat. It would have to be a male. It would have to have no defects, okay? So a good animal, and you would take that animal to the entrance of the tabernacle. There, that animal would be killed. I'm not trying to gross you out, but that animal would be uh, drained of all of its blood. The priest would take the blood, and he would sprinkle the blood around the altar there. The animal was then skinned. It was cut into pieces. Its intestines and its legs were washed. And the priest burned all those pieces of the animal on the altar all night. As a uh, free love offering, if you will, for the priest, he would receive the skin of that animal for himself. Um, what if you were poor? Could you do that? What if you didn't own a bull or a, a sheep or a goat? What would you do? God still had provisions for the poor. If, if you were very destitute, you were still required to give a blood offering. Only, if you were poor, you could... Br- bring a a turtle dove or a pigeon. Now, most likely, you wouldn't have your little turtle dove cage at home to grab one and bring it. Where would you get it? God would provide it. You'd You'd have to work for it a little bit. You'd have to find a turtle dove or a pigeon and capture it. But God would provide the blood offering, whether you were poor or whether you had more means. Now, for blood offerings... You could give a blood offering at any time. Now, there were certain times of the week and certain times of the month and certain seasons and holidays. And one time, a special time every year, where the priest would offer a blood offering on behalf of all the people. And we won't get into all the details there, but you get the essence that the blood offering was there to offer a covering for your sins. 
That's what it meant. Now, two things here. First of all, blood offerings, as I mentioned before, had to be administered first. You couldn't do a grain offering until you did a blood offering. And this meant, and don't miss this, that your sins had to be covered before you could offer to God your life. Before you could ever say, God, here I am, use me for your glory, there's a problem, and the problem is sin. And so your sins had to be covered first before you could set your life apart to God. But a second unique thing about the blood offering is that it could not be personalized in any way. You can't add anything to the animal. You can't fix the animal up the way you wanted to. You couldn't add anything. You couldn't personalize it. And what that meant is that the covering of your sins has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the sacrifice. And so, today, are you and I supposed to offer something to God? The answer is yes. We're supposed to offer something to God. The most important thing is that you have your sins covered. That your sins are completely covered. And by the way, animal sacrifices won't work. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, we read, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you might wonder, well, why did God have the people back then sacrifice bloods and, or you know, bulls and goats and all of that to, to cover their sins? The sacrifice... The sacrifices they made did not permanently wipe away their sins. It simply covered it for a time. It only delayed God's judgment until a proper effective sacrifice came along. And the only sacrifice that can effectively wash away and cover your sins is Jesus Christ. He is the only one. When Jesus came to this earth, when he became a human... And he began his ministry. John the Baptist saw him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who was sacrificed. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we read that Jesus also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the one who is the covering, who is the permanent eternal sacrifice for you and me. Now, if you want your sins covered by the Lord Jesus Christ, all you have to do is say yes to Him. It's to acknowledge your sinfulness before Him and to say to God, yes, I need you to cover my sins. I'm a sinner. 
And my sin separates me from you. And I don't want that anymore, God. Allow Jesus to be my atoning sacrifice. My covering for my sin. And once your sins are covered, then your whole life can become an offering. Your whole life, every moment of every day, you can be a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I want us to focus on this passage of Scripture together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what we are to focus on. Now, how in the world do you and I become a living sacrifice? Here's how you do it. Every day, you present your body to God as an offering. You say to God, here I am. Here's my body. Here's all that I've got. And I present it to you to be used as you will. And so we use our knees to bow down before God. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We use our knees to bow down before God. We use our legs to stand in honor of God's greatness. The psalmist said in Psalm 33 verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. We use our ears to listen to what God has to say. Psalm 143, verse 8 says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. We use our hands to help those whom God loves. In the great proverb of, of the, the woman, in Proverbs chapter 31, the godly woman, we read this. She opens her hands to the poor, and she reaches out her hands to the needy. And we use our voices to sing songs of praise to God. When you and I think of worship, that's typically what we think of, right? We come to God and we sing some songs, and that's the worship before the message. That's not the entirety of worship. The entirety of worship is every day and every moment you using the entirety of your body for God's eternal purposes. A portion of that is when we come together and we sing songs to God, but that's not the entirety of it all. Psalm 7 verse 17 says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. How do we say to God, here I am, a living sacrifice. We use our bodies, and we also, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we renew our minds. We have a different way of thinking, a different way of, of behaving. Years ago, Mike Ditka, who was an incredible football player, he was the, the first football player uh, who was a tight end to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Mike Ditka had played for about eight years before he ever became a tight end 
for, uh, for Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. Well, Mike Ditka had a hot, hot temper. He, he was, he was uh, quick. He, a lot of things could really set him off. One time he, he took a phone book and he tore it in half in anger. Um, well, he eventually, after his career was over, he became an assistant coach for Tom Landry for the Dallas Cowboys. And, of course, if you know anything about Tom Landry, Landry was the complete opposite of him in terms of personality. Very calm, very much a Christian, very much in control of his emotions. Well, during training camp out in Thousand Oaks, California, at a, at a Lutheran college there, um, sometimes Coach Landry would play tennis with his assistants during some breaks just to give them a break from uh, the, the routine there. And fans would come and watch, college uh, fans especially. And one day, Ditka was playing tennis, doubles, with uh, Coach Landry and Dan Reeves and another player. And Ditka, Mike Ditka, was having a very bad game. And he was yelling and screaming. He got so angry playing tennis that he actually scared the fans. He scared uh, his opponents, and he even scared his own partner. And uh, at one point, when he missed a shot, he took his racket and he slammed his racket down in anger, shattering that racket. But he wasn't through. He still hadn't got all of his anger out, so he grabbed the remains of that racket, and he threw it into the net. Only, it went under the net and hit Tom Landry in the foot. And Coach Landry was in obvious pain. He was jumping around, but he didn't yell out or, or say anything, and Mike Dicker was ashamed of himself immediately. And to defuse the situation... Tom Landry turned to Dan Reeves and said, boy, you can get hurt playing this game, can't you? Tom Landry, by that point in his life, had allowed the Spirit of Christ to completely renew his mind. It was almost as if nothing could get to him. His mind had been transformed. His life had been transformed because he put good things, the Word of God specifically, into his life. There's that old saying, you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. You put mess and junk and garbage into your life, into your mind, mess and junk and garbage is going to come out of your mouth, it's going to come out of your life. But if, if you put the Word of God into your mind, then your mind will be completely renewed. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, we read, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You and I as believers, we need to put God's Word. It needs to be central in our lives and in our worship. You see, when people come, the people that God loves in our community, when we invite them and they come to our facility, this facility, and we, they worship with us, or they see us worship, they experience that, then if we are interacting with the Word of God, then that will have an effect on them. The Spirit of God will touch their lives. They will experience God as they see and hear us interacting with the living God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, that the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's why everything that we do when we gather together for worship, there needs to be, at its center, 
the Word of God. And the songs that we sing, and the testimonies that you hear, and the uh, Word of God that is preached, and the prayers that we pray, God's Word must be centered because that's the only way for us to truly become a living sacrifice and to have our minds renewed by God.